This morning, before we dig into our text, I think that it's important that I spend a little bit of time going into some Old Testament background so that we can figure out how is it that we're here. You know, because if you've got a Bible in your lap, you'll notice that Mark is kind of towards the right side of the book rather than the left. So a lot of stuff has gone on before we get to Mark's gospel or Mark's good news. So turn in your Bible, if you will, to the book of Genesis. While you're turning there to Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to kind of catch us up to speed very quickly on what's going on in Genesis up to this point. In Genesis 1, we have the creation of, I don't know, everything. (laughs) The creation of time, space, matter. We go through the six days of creation. And then chapter 1 ends with God saying, well, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it it was very good. It's very good. It wasn't just halfway good. It wasn't just that God did a mediocre job. God looked at everything that he created, and it was very good. But we see in chapter 3, or chapter 2 kind of recaps a little bit about day 6 during creation week, but by the time we get to chapter 3, we've got a problem. And I'm trying to get ahead of my slides, so thank you, Ricky, for not doing that for me. All right, life is good in chapter 1, because God told Adam and Eve, He said, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I mean, that's the life, right? I mean, God basically said, here is a peaceful, perfect garden that's beautiful. Now have kids, grow a family, and take the beauty that you see here and spread it everywhere. You don't have to worry about animals opposing you. You don't have to fear the animals. Everybody's on great terms with each other. There's no disease. There's no sickness. There's no death. God said, do this. Plant this garden. Enjoy. Enjoy what I have created for you. Eat anything you want. Anything you want. Except for this one tree. All right, God said, I've got this one tree here in this garden. I call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't eat the fruit from that tree. All right? Anything you want, enjoy it. It's yours, but not this tree. If you eat this fruit, mark my words, you'll die. All right? So God gave Adam and Eve run of everything except for this one tree. Sounds great, right? Grow a family, cultivate a garden, have the run of the land. Enjoy the presence of God forever. That sounds great. All right, so things should live happily ever after. But it doesn't. Because it's not too much longer before we see another character enter the story. Lucifer, also known as Satan, also known as the devil. He approaches Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and we see where he has this conversation with her. And he says, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit, all right? I mean, are you, are you really going to die if you eat anything in the garden? You're not going to die. He said, God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because God knows that in the day that you eat the fruit, well, you're going to actually be like him. Your eyes will be open, and you'll know everything. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, don't you want to be like God? It seems that no one is impervious to the temptation to become God. 
All right, Satan obviously knew that one from firsthand experience. Sadly and stupidly, Eve buys into that lie. She believes that, that it's better for her to follow that temptation, to eat of that forbidden fruit, rather than to obey the God that created her. And so she eats it. And then she makes it even worse. She gives it to her, sounds harsh, but her good-for-nothing husband who is with her, who seemingly does nothing to prevent her from this rebellion against God. He eats it too. And sure enough, like Satan had said, their eyes were opened. Open to the reality that, man, they just screwed up. I mean, they just wrecked everything. Things were different. They realized they were naked. All right? Not going to go into too much detail, but how cool would it be to just run around naked and not care? All right? <laughs> but they realized, man, we, we have no clothes on. We need to cover ourselves. And so fear replaced joy. Shame replaced fun. And when they knew that God was coming their way, because up to this point, they enjoyed personal, hands-on fellowship with God. But when they knew that God was coming after they had done this, they were struck by fear, and they tried to hide themselves. And I don't even think up until that day they knew what fear even was. And so they rebel against God. They eat this fruit. They believe the lie. Life changes. Reality absolutely obliterated. And now when God comes, they want to hide. They want to hide from the God that had formed them with his own hands. I mean, just try to wrap your mind around their ability to enjoy the very presence of God. Not in this weird, undefinable, God is all around us, he's in the trees. And it, no, I'm saying that God manifested himself into a visible, physical person that they could enjoy. And now they're running from him. They're hiding from him. They realize they had screwed up, and I, I don't even think that it had dawned on them, maybe we can ask forgiveness. I don't think it occurred to them, God loves us, we can just run to him and tell him we've, we've messed up. I mean, our kids do it all the time, right? You know, when we catch them messing up and they realize, oh, I'm in trouble, the first thing they want to do is, is run and give you a hug. And I don't know if it's because they're truly remorseful or if they're just thinking maybe if I butter dad up, then he won't light my butt up. I don't know, but it's our natural inclination to try to, to, try to run to our, our father. But they run away. They run away. Can you imagine how God's heart, how his heart must have been breaking? when he's looking at his children who were running from him in fear? I mean, what did that do to God? He could have destroyed them. Did he not have every right to? What did he tell them? He said, I've given you all of it. Leave this tree alone. And their first response to that is, to the wind with that, I want the tree. He could have destroyed them. He told them, in the day you eat, you'll surely die. But if you go through the account in Genesis 3, you'll see that instead of destroying them, instead of slaughtering them, instead of killing them, rightfully so, for their rebellion against him, he instead 
covers them with skins. All right, I don't know how effective they were in grabbing various leaves and trying to figure out how to make a little bikini out of it, you know, to cover their nakedness. Probably didn't work too well. Uh, I hope that they grabbed poison ivy just as a, a lesson, although it probably didn't really hurt them prior to the fall. But Sorry, I rabbit trail, I guess. God kills an innocent animal who had done God no wrong so that he could cover the humans that had done wrong. All right, even there in that action, God is screaming mercy. God is screaming forgiveness. Unfortunately, though their physical lives were spared, there was a physical death or a spiritual death that occurred that day that has ramifications for the entire human race. But God covered their sin symbolically, as we can see later throughout the historic redemptive work of Christ. But he also gave them a promise, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, or the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. All right, so we don't have to go all the way to the book of Matthew to find the gospel. We can go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God had promised that a descendant of Adam and Eve would ultimately crush the head of Satan. He would be bruised, I mean, he would be, his heel would be bruised, he would be injured, but he would bruise or crush or destroy the head of this enemy of God, of Satan. All right, so all the way back in Genesis 3, God is promising, I'm not going to leave it broken. I'm not going to let you perish. I'm not going to destroy you. Some 4,000 years later, that promise is fulfilled on the cross of Christ for the Son of God redeemed his people by bearing their sins upon himself where the wrath and justice of God were satisfied in his Son, where our sins were placed upon the sinless one, where Jesus hung and said, it is finished. All right? It's, it's done. Game over. Paid in full. Debt canceled. All right? So we saw this become a reality at the cross. Three days after that, Jesus rises from the dead. Forty days after that, he ascends into heaven. Less than two weeks after that, the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost and wrecks the place. All right, we're talking about one simple sermon by a guy named Peter that we're going to get to who preaches just a rather simple sermon saying this is what the deal is and this is what you've done and this is who God is and God saves people, 3,000 of them like that. And that was a very, very wimpy snap. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is on the scene. All right, so then fast forward another 25, 30 years after that, and we start to see where the church is now under severe attack. It's especially bad in Rome, where Nero is in charge of things. And your conversion to Christianity, your allegiance to Jesus Christ as your Lord, is basically subversive to the Roman Empire. It was your death warrant. If you said, no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, then you were signing your death warrant. Within 25, 30 years of Jesus saying, it's good for you that I leave, but now that he's gone, people are being killed for following him. And so we find Mark, who was a contemporary of Peter and Paul, writing this book, this account, this good news, specifically to these Christians who were in Rome. 
And one of the challenges that Walt and I are dealing with, it's, it's almost amusing, it's almost not. But the problem is, is that if Mark's gospel predates Matthew, Luke, and John, or if he wrote that to be circulated among the church before any of the other three, then anyone reading Mark doesn't have the advantage of being able to go, well, I don't understand this, let's flip back a few pages and go to Matthew. Or, well, what does Luke say about this? They don't have that advantage. Even if Matthew came first, some people think it did, whether it did or not, Matthew is writing to a distinctly Jewish audience. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience in Rome. And so the Roman Christians who are reading this aren't going to be able to supplement what Mark says with what Matthew says. And so we have a problem in some of the texts that we get to because in some things Mark does not say a lot especially the text that we're going to get into in a little bit. But it's funny because if you go to a bookstore or if you're reading your study Bible or you're reading a commentary and you go to some portions of Mark, they all say, see Matthew chapter 4, all right, for the complete picture. And that's good. That's extremely beneficial to us 2,000 years later going and taking these various viewpoints, these angles, putting them together and seeing a complete or a more full picture. But could Mark's readers do that? No. And so the challenge is not to add to Mark so that we can understand Mark. The challenge is, what was Mark trying to communicate with what Mark said? All right? And so that's what we're going to try to do, not just today, but but for the rest of this series. I'm not saying that we're never going to complement Mark with the other three. But I think that if we just springboard off of Mark and dive into Matthew chapter 4, where there's a whole lot of more material, then we might be missing the point of what Mark was trying to communicate specifically to the Gentile Christians in Rome, which we now can learn from and apply. So put yourself in their shoes. All right. It's been almost 30 years since Christ has left. The government is hostile to you. Life, life is a lot harder 2,000 years ago than it is now. Would you agree? All right, there's no air conditioning. There's no heat. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no microwaves. There's no Facebook. Some of you just got a little sweaty thinking about the idea of life with no Facebook. It was tough. And so as, as these Christians in Rome are trying to be followers of Christ, they're seeing their friends, their family, murdered for following this man named Jesus. And Mark wants to write this book so that he can let them know who this Jesus is that they're following. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, what is Mark telling us? What is Jesus telling us through this preparation period? Before he even begins his ministry, what is he saying? And so these believers in Rome, you know, they may be going through some of the Old Testament and trying to figure things out because they weren't Jews, all right? They didn't have the advantage of growing up in a religious upbringing where they were up to speed on Genesis through Malachi, and then they're like, oh, I understand what's going on. I mean, they may have been somewhat informed about what had happened historically, but not much, all right? And so they're trying to figure things out, and they're going through this book, and they see, okay, uh, So John the Baptist was one of these Old Testament prophets, and evidently Isaiah and Malachi, if they had gotten some extra information, was prophesying. So, okay, so John the Baptist arrived on the scene. 
and then they see Jesus, you know, putting himself symbolically in the place of sinners. And so as they continue reading, they see in verse 12 that after the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ, do you remember last week the heavens ripped open and the Holy Spirit like a dove came down and anointed Jesus and that voice from heaven said, you are my son, I love you, I am well pleased. All right, so they're following all of this going on and then they get to verse 12 and it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and this might have knocked him off guard a little bit. Further out into the wilderness. What? Because, I mean, Jesus had just been baptized. All right? He had just been anointed and dwelt empowered by the Holy Spirit. God had just said, I am pleased with you. And so what they might expect is that, okay, well, Jesus is here. Jesus is on the scene. He's been, he's been baptized. He is showing to the world a picture of what he's going to do. God is happy with him. The Holy Spirit is with him. Okay, it's time for Jesus to get to work and go, right? But no, not, not so fast. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. They were already away from the city. They were miles outside of Jerusalem where John was baptizing at the Jordan River. And Jesus was driven even further into no man's land. It wasn't that Jesus thought, ah, I'm going to go take a stroll and get lost. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit was, was communicating with God the Son, saying, why don't we go out here and kick some rocks in the desert? No, the Spirit drove him. It's the same Greek verb that's used when Jesus throws demons out of people. All right, I mean, there is some force behind it. The Holy Spirit is on a mission to get Christ into the wilderness. And so this may have had the Christians of Rome scratching their head a little bit. Because here's the thing. They were used to the life of living in the proverbial wilderness. Okay? They were used to having to perhaps run from the law to maybe even conceal the fact that they were believers. They were used to having to meet in secret as a small church so that they wouldn't attract attention to themselves and have their homes burned down or their kids kidnapped, sold off, murdered, whatever it is that the government wanted to do to them, it could. And so they're used to this life of hardship. But we don't see Jesus accidentally finding himself in the middle of this hardship. We don't see Jesus taking a wrong turn and winding up out here where life is hard. All right, the Spirit drove him into it. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this communicate, not just to us, but to these believers in Rome who are being persecuted for their obedience to Christ? Because they see here that God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, purposed to send his Son out into the wilderness. It was part of the plan. It wasn't accidental. You might ask, but, 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 but what about he leads me beside still waters, okay? I like that. I like the idea of me holding God's hand, and he's leading me beside still waters, and it's me and God, and life is good. Okay, we like that, but, but he also leads us to stormy seas. He also leads us to stormy seas. 
And so the Christians in Rome, they're reading this letter perhaps by candlelight. They're scared for their lives. Everybody's out to get them. And they see here that hardship as a follower of Christ is not an indicator that God has left you. If anything, the hardship that you're going through in life is evidence that God is refining you, shaping you to use you for His purposes in His kingdom. And so the readers in Rome, us today, we can see that part of God's plan for us might very well, in fact does, include the times of hardship, the times of trial. It's easy to tell ourselves as we look at the turmoil within our lives, the stress, the craziness, the emotional roller coaster, it's easy to look at that and say, well, God has abandoned me, all right? He must not love me. But he does. He does. It gets worse for Jesus. Yep, it gets worse. Because it wasn't just a day trip. He was in the wilderness 40 days. 40 days. That's like a four followed by one zero. All right. That's a lot of time to be in the wilderness. Mark tells us he spent the next 40 days out there being tempted by Satan. It wasn't just, okay, your 40 days are up. Okay, that's good. Now come over here and be tempted. Huh? Probably from the time his feet hit the soil, there was Satan just like he was in the Garden of Eden. Let's talk. I got an idea, yo. Because Satan's kind of thuggish. <laughs> Forty days being tempted by Satan. He's probably still dripping wet from his baptism. And he finds himself out here. No food. No shelter. His wet clothes, perhaps the shoes on his feet ready to spend the next 960 hours being tempted by the most diabolical, brilliant schemer in existence. Nothing but the unbearable midday heat. That sounded like Uriah. <laughs> Sorry. Nothing but the unbearable heat. The cold, rock-hard ground at night to sleep on if he slept. Perhaps near water, perhaps not. But he was there 40 days continuously being pushed by this guy, tested by this guy to see if he can make him break. Several years ago, I was at my reserve unit, which at the time was in Gainesville, Georgia. And there was a guy there that had a, had a pretty cool wedding band. This is not such a pretty cool wedding band. But he had a tungsten carbide wedding band. Anybody ever heard of, of one of those rings? Tungsten carbide. Alrighty. Pretty cool. Pretty cool metal this tungsten carbide is. It's forged out of tungsten and carbon, several thousand degrees, somehow molecular bleh, I'm gonna butcher that word, fused together to create <laughs> here's that education I need. Fused together to create this I mean it is a super hard metal that can be fashioned into jewelry, it can be used for a, a variety of things but it's super hard and impervious to being scratched by almost any known substance out there. And so he wants to demonstrate this. And so he takes his ring, 
and he takes out his Gerber multi-tool and he pulls out the little file on it and he's sitting there with his ring and just running the file across this thing vigorously for like 20 seconds and the rest of us are like, <laughs> you're an idiot. Finishes doing that, takes the ring, wipes it on his uniform, blows on it, and shows it to us. Not a single scratch anywhere. All right, that's pretty cool. Because at that time, my wedding band, this is my third one. Don't ask me about the other two. <laughs> Sorry, babe. My wedding band, if you even looked at it hard, it would scuff. All right? His didn't. And so he wanted to further demonstrate the quality of this ring, this indestructible, unscratchable, like bulletproof ring. And so next comes the impact test. All right? He's going to show us how hard he can hit this thing because it's like indestructible. Well, we don't have a hammer on hand, but we have the next best thing, which is a little like an iron collar that you slide onto the end of a bench press bar to lock the weights on. All right, so he takes this thing and he puts his ring edge up on the ground and pulls back this thing and then swings it down so that he can show us how indestructible this ring is. And the rest of us, while we're still thinking to ourselves, you might not be such an idiot, but this is stupid, we watch the look on his face as this ring absolutely shatters. I mean, it doesn't just break. That thing explodes. It's kind of like the glass in a vehicle. You know, you don't just break it into three big pieces. When you break it, it's like a bajillion pieces. All right, so he's staring at this pile of dust that used to be his wedding band with this look on his face that basically told all of us, I'm a dead man. All right. He had only been married like two weeks at this point. Brand new wife, brand new ring into a million pieces. Because this, this, this is what he didn't realize. Yeah, tungsten carbide, it's, it's really hard. You can't scratch it unless you've got some pretty cool, like maybe with a diamond, maybe not even with a diamond. So you can't scratch it. But the problem is to get it like that, to get that hardness, you lose some of the quality that allows it to resist heavy impact. That's one of the biggest problems with those rings is people find that if it's hit just right, it shatters. It doesn't just break or split. It shatters. And that's what Jesus is undergoing in the wilderness because Satan wants to test him to find that weakness, to push him past the breaking point and shatter him. Because he knows that if he can get Jesus to mess up just once, just once, it doesn't even have to be a big sin. It can be, hey, why don't you just use your power to feed yourself because you're really hungry. Alright? Not a huge sin, right? Satan doesn't go to Jesus and say, hey, let's go kill somebody. Alright? It wasn't huge. It didn't have to be huge, but one sin would stain Jesus and make him no longer eligible to be the sinless, sacrificial Lamb of God. And so he spends 40 days out there, tired, cold, hot, hungry, and everywhere he turns, the temptation to mess up just once. We could go, we could go to Matthew chapter 4, all right? We could go to Luke, and we could... We could open this phrase right here up and see exactly how 
at least for three of the temptations. We could do that, but, but Mark doesn't. It's like Mark just wants to communicate in that one simple phrase. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Mark is saying, yeah, Jesus was isolated from people. He was hungry, tired, worn, miserable, and continually tempted to abuse his divinity to deviate from God's plan for him to be a rescuer of his people. It's like he's saying, yeah, Jesus did that. Just a single temptation. Just once. Once was all he had to deviate from his plan. And that plan was what? To redeem his people. His people. What do you think was on Jesus' mind those 40 days? Do you think that he sat and threw a pity party and was thinking to himself, like Eeyore, I guess I'm just hungry. All right. Do you think that he went out there and just kind of slept for 40 days so that when it was over he could, he could leave? Or do you think that that gave him all the time in the world to think about why he was out there so that every time his stomach growled or when it stopped growling because he was slowly starving away, when he was thirsty, when he was tired, what do you think that he was thinking about? Do you think that he was thinking, well, man, this is miserable, of all of the things that I've got to do to save a stupid group of people. No, I, I, don't, I don't think that he was thinking that at all. See, Jesus was undergoing this temptation in the wilderness for the purpose of identifying himself with his people. Do you understand the difference there? Jesus wasn't doing it out of obligation. I mean, it wasn't part of the plan of redemption, but it was part of his plan so that he could show us, I have been in your shoes. I have been tired. I have been hungry. I have been rejected by society. I have been tempted far beyond anything that any of us have been tempted. We see the writer of Hebrews tell us this. All right, this is part of the motivation for Jesus being in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, we're not going through Jesus as our high priest knowing that he has no clue what we're talking about. But no, Jesus does know what we're talking about. He's been there. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But here's the difference. Yet without sin. Because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You think about that part. Because Jesus had been in our shoes, because he has faced our temptations, we don't just go to him when we need help. All right? We don't just go to him when we say, Jesus, I've got this temptation going on and I need help. All right? Why else do we go to him? To receive mercy. All right, so can you imagine what's going through Jesus' mind these 40 days in the wilderness? Every temptation that he has faced, he is facing with the knowledge, man, I'm doing this for a group of people that's going to screw up where I didn't. I am standing in this place in the wilderness, resisting temptation after temptation after temptation so that I can identify with my people 
who fail and fail and fail and fail. Not that I can condemn them and judge them and beat them over the head, but so that when they mess up, they can come to me and receive mercy. So that I can give them grace to stand. So no, Jesus is not in that wilderness thinking, man, this is horrible. I've got nothing better to do, but you know. No, Jesus, Jesus is identifying himself with us. So even though he's not yet spoken, can you see the message that's being communicated to these Gentile Christians in Rome as they see, okay, okay, these hardships, they're not a sign that God has left us, but a, but, but a sign that God is still with us, helping us to endure. But then they're also seeing that Jesus withstood these temptations, that he remained the sinless sacrifice. There was a unique thing going on. About 2,000 years ago, first couple centuries of the church, something that we here in America don't really yet, I say yet because I think it's coming, we've not yet had to experience this. Some places in the world currently are, but we, this is a new one to us, so I need to do a little bit of history here so that we can better identify with Mark's readers because there is something weird going on, all right? As the Christians were being persecuted for their faith, there began to emerge various groups of people. All right, the first group were known as confessors. All right, they confessed Jesus as Lord, and they were persecuted for it. Those that were persecuted to the point of death became known as what? Martyrs. All right, so you've got confessors because the church wanted to give that recognition and the respect to people who had been persecuted for their faith in Christ, even if they hadn't been killed for it. And so they called them confessors. But, but here's the problem. Not every follower of Christ that was persecuted for their faith continued to take a stand for their faith. There became a group of people that were known as lapses, who had recanted their faith. When the government came knocking and said, renounce Christ or die, Jesus who? All right. Now, it's easy for us, it's easiest for us to sit back and go, well, I don't know, because 1 John 2.19 says that, that if they had gone out from us, well, let's just read it. If that's the next slide that I've got. John says, all right, talking about people who left the church, who left professing Christianity, he said, well, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So on the surface, it's easy for, easy for us to consider this group of people who had recanted their faith and simply say, well, they were never believers in the first place. All right? And I would grant that there is a lot of legitimacy to that idea. I'm not saying that everyone that recanted their faith was actually a Christian. Because here is what was happening. A lot of these people, these lapses, the ones that surrendered scripture, they were known as traitors. All right? How are these cool nicknames? Hey, I'm a lapsy. What are you? No. All right. But they couldn't remain like that. So let me, let me walk you through this. All right. So there's a knock at the door, renounce Christ or die, and there is that temptation right there. All right. I can confess my allegiance to Jesus and die and leave my family into the hands of the Roman Empire defenseless. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I love my children. 
I'm so scared of what's going to happen to them. And in that moment of weakness, they say, I'm not a follower of Christ. But history tells us that there were a large number of these lapses who couldn't stand what they had done. And so they recanted their recant. All right? They went after the Roman government and said, I am a Christ follower. And if it costs me my life, I am a follower of Christ. And so we see this unique phenomenon of people who had turned their back on Christ, being just overcome with repentance and regret and remorse, and then confessing their faith without any care whatsoever if they died for it. But some of these people who had first renounced their faith only to in turn embrace it, who perhaps weren't killed for it, are reading this letter. Now, have you ever been in a position where you have had to denounce Christ under that kind of temptation, only to read Mark say, yeah, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted and yet without sin? I mean, how convicting must it be to realize, okay, God is in the wilderness in full knowledge that, that I was going to deny him just to save my own skin because I thought that life was too hard. Some of us might be thinking, well, I'd never renounce my faith. <laughs> Turn my back on Christ. Never do it. But don't we do that every time we sin? Every time we sin, we're saying, no, Jesus. I don't want it your way. You just stay over here and I'm going to do it my way. We might not be doing it to save our lives, but every time we sin, we are essentially renouncing our Savior. And yet Jesus, for 40 days, underwent this temptation so that he could continually forgive us. That's crazy. A couple more thoughts, and then we'll wrap this up. Mark gives us a couple more observations about Jesus' time in the wilderness. He said he was with the wild animals. All right, did you know that Mark is the only one that mentions this? He's the only one that throws in this little detail, and we have to ask ourselves, all right, why? What is Mark communicating here? Now, some people who have tried to offer commentary simply say that this is an aspect of Jesus' misery. All right, he's out here in the desert, and there's wild animals that he's scared of. And I'm like, uh, Jesus, Jesus created these animals. All right. I don't think he's playing hide-and-seek with a group of hyenas out in the wilderness. But it says that he was with the wild animals. He was in the midst of them. Part of Jesus' mission, part of the reason he came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a spotless life, and then hung on a cross and died, only to rise from the dead. That was so that he could reconcile all things to himself. Do you remember that promise back in Genesis 3 where God said, I'm not going to leave it broken? Jesus' arrival said, I'm here to fix it. And so as he is being tempted by Satan, which would then allow him to not do this rescue mission, we see a picture here where once again things might be all right because Jesus is with these wild animals. 
and a picture of the fellowship that the first Adam had in the garden with the animals. So why is this significant to the people in Rome? Walt's already mentioned before that one of the ways in which the early church was persecuted is that they were dressed in the skins of animals and released to the wild beast. In fact, we're going to read one eyewitness account of that. Tacitus said, therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith. All right, there's that temptation. They did not succumb to it. They admitted their faith, and then this is what they got as a reward for it. Then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, which they shouldn't have been convicted for because that was probably Nero in the first place, but for hatred of the human race. Okay, the Christians were persecuted for the hatred of the human race because they were monotheistic. And, okay, perishing, they were additionally made into sports. Through their deaths, they became entertainment. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Okay? That's what you got for being a Christian. They were dressed in the skins of animals, and then the dogs were set loose on them so that the dogs could rip them open and kill them for the amusement and their entertainment of the Roman Empire. And yet Mark says, Jesus was with the wild beast. Jesus is going to fix things. Jesus is demonstrating in this wilderness that he is Lord over creation. And as the Holy Spirit is writing through Mark and telling Mark, tell these people that my son was with the wild beast, what Jesus is saying is this, yeah, times are tough, all right? I know that they're killing you. I know that they're putting the skins of animals on you and letting the dogs loose, but I'm Lord over all of this, and I'm going to fix it. So yes, you're going to die, but you get me, because I'm Lord over all of it. So don't buckle when they come after you. Don't succumb to that temptation. Be strong. And then lastly, am I at lastly? Yeah, I'm getting there. Mark tells us that the angels were there ministering to him. All right, we don't have a lot of detail of what that looked like. All right, we know that Jesus fasted for the 40 days, so it's not like the angels were saying, here, have a Big Mac. I don't know what that looks like, but what Mark is communicating is that even in this time of, of unceasing temptation and heartache and hardship, that God is there taking care of his son through his angels, clearly communicating to us, to the readers in Rome, that God is going to be there with you, bringing you through this trial. Whether it means bringing you home where you can enjoy God for eternity, or helping you on this pilgrimage that we call life, God is there with you. He's there with you. So Mark's message to the early church, his message first day is this. He says, don't be surprised when hard times come. They're part of life. You may fail in temptation, but your Savior did not. Don't look at the wilderness as if God has left you. God is with you. Trust that God will care for you, because you will. As our musicians come up, and man, I'm, I'm long-winded this morning, and I'm sorry for that. As our musicians come up and they prepare to lead us into this time of response, I want to share 
I want to share one last thought with you. One last thought that Mark's readers had access to. Because it was a promise of God that's not only found in the Old Testament, but it's repeated in the New Testament. It's a promise from God to his people where he says, I will never, never, never leave you. I will not forsake you. He says it to his people in Deuteronomy. We see that that message is for the church in Hebrews. And so Mark's readers may have known that. They may not have. But I want you to know that even if you're in the middle of your wilderness, even if you are struggling with sin, where you are failing daily to stand up to the temptation that comes your way, that regardless of how often you fail, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus is saying, I was tempted too so that I could give you grace and mercy. And so that brings us to our journey marker. That brings us to our journey marker. Jesus' preparation was a declaration of his dedication to his people. What is Jesus saying as he is, as he is out there in the wilderness? He's saying, I love my people. I'm going to undergo this misery. I'm going to withstand these temptations. Not so that I can lord it over them and say, I succeeded where you fell, but so that he could say, hey, I understand. I understand. So if you're sitting here this morning and Christ is not your Savior, if you don't know what it means to be a follower of Christ, maybe the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and drawing you to the Son, recognize that part of Jesus' ministry in the wilderness was so that he could stand there with his arms outstretched on the cross and say, whosoever will, let him come. I know you've failed. I know you've messed up. I know you're not good enough. I know you're not perfect. I know that. And yet I'm here so that I can forgive those who come. Or maybe you're a follower of Christ and man, you're struggling. There's one particular issue that's just beating you up day after day after day and you can't get victory. And finally, you're at the point where you just want to hide your head from God because you just don't think that he loves you anymore. No, Jesus says, I was there. I know the temptation that you're facing. Come to me. I've got grace. I've got mercy. Don't hide. Don't be like Adam and Eve and run from the presence of Christ. But yet he's there and he says, I love you and I have forgiven you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you less. Are you going to sit here and leave with the baggage of your failures, or are you going to give them to Christ and trust his word that you are indeed forgiven? And so we're going to enter into a time of prayer, and then after prayer we're going to go through a, just a time of response where you have the opportunity just to, just to talk to God, you know, to say thank you for what you've done, to talk to Jesus and say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your forgiveness because, man, I blow it all the time. Maybe it's for the first time in your life for you to say, God, I have no clue what's going on, but I need you and I need your son as my Savior, whatever it is. How will you respond to the Holy Spirit? Father, Father, as, as we stand to our feet and begin to enter into this time of response. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts. 
Father, I know I've, I've been really unfair and long-winded this morning, but Lord, help us to look past that and to embrace the reality that what your son said to us was, I love you, I am dedicated to you, I am suffering for you. So Father, help us to, may help us to live our life in gratitude to that. Father, for the sins that we're, we're facing, that we're failing in, the temptations that we can't, that we just can't seem to get beyond, help us to give that to you. Help us to trust that you will give us grace in time of need. Help us to embrace your mercy in our time of failure. Just work among us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.